Well, as I said, we are in Isaiah chapter 39. Um, the title of our message is The Peril of Prosperity, which a title which I will explain over the next 40 or so minutes. But the, if you'll allow me to indulge myself in a little bit of nostalgia, let me talk to you guys about the first vehicle I ever owned. It was a 1989 Jeep Cherokee Pioneer. It was a two-door. It was the most beautiful vehicle ever made, except for the fact that when I received it, it was a free vehicle, but it had so many problems. When I got it, it had a worn-out rear differential. Um, it had a, a head gasket that was ready to blow at any time. Um, its entire uh, cooling system would leak constantly. It was stuck in four-wheel drive for about two years. All these problems had an oil leak that leaked right onto the exhaust pipe, so if I was sitting in traffic for a while, there's smoke would be everywhere. But I loved the vehicle. And I, until we, we got rid of it just a few years ago, I, I would tell um, my wife quite often, this vehicle is just going to last forever. It's going to last, you know, like 100,000 miles. And that was the perception I had of the vehicle, not realizing that when I started to recount all the things that had gone wrong with it and how expensive everything that had gone wrong with it um, was, I, I realized, oh, this really wasn't the greatest vehicle. This maybe won't last another 100,000 miles as I insisted that it would. And the, the perception that I had of the vehicle was that it was every time I drove it and nothing was wrong, I thought, man, this is just the best vehicle ever. But it, the problem was that it didn't really have any warning lights. It didn't have a check engine light. Its four-wheel drive light wasn't functional. Um, its anti-lock brakes light would never work, and so my brakes would lock up quite often. And so all those warning lights were really out, and it gave me the perception that everything more or less was okay. And I contrast that with the vehicle we have now. Well, I mean, Alyssa has now, it's her vehicle. It's, it's a 2017, so you know, we go from a 30-year-old vehicle to like a three-year-old vehicle, and it's a, it's a Volkswagen, and it, it tells you, like it reminds you before you leave the car, don't forget your cell phone, it has a backup light, it has a tire pressure sensor, which you guys are like, yeah, that's what most vehicles have now, but you know, that surprised me, a tire pressure sensor. And you know, it has all these different things, and it has a maintenance thing, and it says, you might wanna check on this thing, and stuff like that, and it's just, it's really impressive but after a while I realized that all those warning lights were, were going so much that I tended to ignore it and the tire pressure signal uh, sensor came on a couple times and you know I just reset it you know it wasn't that big a deal until I realized oh there's a nail in the car there's a nail in the tire and I should really get that checked well when I was looking at the role of Isaiah in his relationship to the kings Isaiah's role as a prophet it was kind of like those those warning lights where, where things maybe were, were starting to break a little bit and the, the owner of the car might figure out, oh, something's a little bit wrong, and the warning light comes on and says, here's exactly your problem. Here's what it was. And that was kind of Isaiah's role. We think of prophecy as, you know, um, predicting the future or things like that, and that was part of Isaiah's job, especially to, to the king and, and to, to us today to, to understand the coming Messiah, Jesus, who would save us from our sins um, Isaiah has a lot to say about that, but a lot of his role was telling the king in his time, the people in power, Hezekiah for our purposes, that this thing is wrong and you really need to fix that. And in a way, Isaiah chapter 38, where Hezekiah was close to death, the sickness, 
um, the sickness came upon him, I, Isaiah functioned kind of as a warning light when things were uh, um, acting correctly, and he says, you know what, you need to put your house in order because you're going to die. You're not going to survive this illness. And as we know from the story, as, as John taught last week, that Hezekiah went and prayed, and he, he came to the Lord in, in overwhelmed in tears, and God granted him 15 more years of life. And so we, we look at that kind of story and we think, yeah, that, that's kind of true in our own lives. When, when something goes wrong in our life, that's when we tend to look to God. There's not a large leap from, you know, having people die around you or knowing that there's a war raging that's, that might be close to you or in times of national crisis where there's an attack on our nation. It, it, it's not a large leap to, to see that kind of issue and be close to that kind of um, danger and think of, oh man, I, I need to really think about my life and eternity. Where will I spend eternity? You know, what am I going to do? And we might think of several people's lives that have been turned around because of a close encounter with death. We just uh, celebrated on October 31st, not only Halloween, but Reformation Day, um, where Martin Luther, you know, nailed the, the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Chapel door, or, you know, they, don't, they say he might have glued it or something like that. that. That's not specific. But Martin Luther's story, if you ever heard it, is really fascinating because as a young man, he was caught in a thunderstorm, and he really feared for his life, and he thought, this is the day that I'm going to die, when he was caught and lightning was striking around him, and he said, if I live, I'm going to become a monk and devote my entire life to the Lord. And that completely, that, that brush with death completely turned his life around. He ended up joining the Catholic Church and then reading the Bible for himself and um, understanding the, the, true, um, the truth of justification by faith. And he, he encountered all those, all because of this encounter with death that completely kind of turned his life into a 180. Or you might think of the... Um, the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, who was really a proto-communist in the 19th century, and he was spreading propaganda, and he was writing all these things to generate a revolution, so much so that he found himself arrested and right before a firing squad, and he was really effectively within the last few moments of his life, and for some reason, they decided not to kill that particular man. And instead, they sent him to a prison camp in Siberia. And there he experienced a conversion, and he came to the Lord and became a Christian. And so we think of those in, in really incredible circumstances in which someone comes close to death, but they, they turn to God in that time because they recognize their need. But then there's Hezekiah. Then there's the king of Judah, as we read last week, he entreated the Lord with tears and begged for his life. And God answered his prayer very quickly, as we, as we learned last week. And God gave him 15 more years of life. And that was no small gain. We might think, you know, 15 more years, that's, that's, that's pretty good. You know, it's not, you know, 50 or something like that. But just think, just put it in perspective. Hezekiah's entire reign was 29 years. That means over half Hezekiah's reign was due to the sole intervention of God. God intervened on his behalf, and so he could only attribute the fact that he existed on earth to the intervention of God, to the miraculous. But today, we're going to look at what happened after and what exactly Hezekiah did with those 15 years after 
God answered his prayer and healed him of the illness he had and gave him more years of life. And so we're going to look at the epilogue to Hezekiah's life where Isaiah the prophet writing here records the close of his life, what, what happened near the end. And in a way, the prosperity and the health he experienced in his later years was more damaging to him, spiritually speaking, than the illness he experienced. And it was kind of like in these later years, Hezekiah was driving that 1989 Jeep Cherokee, and no warning lights were coming on, and then all of a sudden something very significant happened. You know, the, the, the head gas did, get blew, and suddenly, you know, it was a giant, you know, uh, dangerous situation for him. And it was, he was kind of like in that space where things were going well until they weren't. And Isaiah the prophet has a role in telling him exactly what's going on. So as we're, we're breaking into November, into the, the season that we have that we know as Thanksgiving, and we're approaching the time in which Christians really appropriately give thanks to God for the prosperity we have, for the family we have, for the jobs that we're able to have, and for the money we're able to work for. We also know that prosperity poses somewhat of a threat to our souls and poses a threat to our hearts, and it can lead our hearts away from God. So we have to separate in our heads, first of all, the difference between you know, God's explicit favor on our lives, that, that God specifically approves of us, and a prosperous time. Because the Bible is actually clear that, first of all, it is a gift to be able to prosper. It is a gift from God that we have financial stability, that we have health, and that we have wellness. But it also tells us on the other side that the wicked often prosper. Take a look at the Psalms, and the psalmist is complaining, why are the wicked prospering? I'm the one who's suffering in this situation. The wicked are prospering. But the perspective we gain from the Psalms is the fact that the wicked are prospering, but their prosperity is only for a moment. They don't have the warning signs of God's prophets. They don't have the warning signs to threaten them um, or to, to turn them away from the sins that they have. They don't have the word of God so that when they crash, when things break in their life, they break catastrophically and there's no coming back from it. So we should understand that warning lights exist in the Christian's life and that we can experience prosperity, which is nice. We can also experience hardship, but God works in both ways and God has a message to give us in both kind of situations and that we shouldn't depend on whether we feel good or whether we're healthy or whether we feel bad to conclude whether God is necessarily happy with us or anything like that. We should trust in the promises of Scripture. But Hezekiah's recovery, as we see, did not quicken his desire to devote his life to God. He didn't have that kind of conversion where he had a brush with death, and he's like, I'm going to devote the remaining years of my life to the Lord. It's actually to the contrary. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 25, tells us, um, and it's kind of instructive for us, what does it tell us about Hezekiah? It says, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. And it was this pride that he had in his later years after God gave him this great gift of life that made him most vulnerable to the most significant defeat he experienced during his tenure as king. But his, his defeat wasn't on a battlefield. It wasn't under siege. 
The defeat was in his heart. So why don't we go ahead and jump in the chapter. Isaiah chapter 39, starting in verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had learned, or for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So Hezekiah's recovery was, wasn't a private thing. Everyone learned about it, and faraway nations learned about it, even the nation of Babylon. So Hezekiah was so widely known that all these surrounding nations heard what happened. And so Babylon chooses to send gifts to Hezekiah as a way of greeting and kind of a congratulations for his recovery. And it kind of acknowledges the years and the gift that God had granted him. Now Babylon was not in absolute world power. And Babylon actually was oppressed at this time by the Assyrian Empire. And so Babylon, in a way, was making overtures by sending him these gifts for a sort of alliance, if you will. And so we should understand what the subtext of this visit is. It's somewhat of an alliance with the nation of Babylon. And if that nation sounds familiar, it, it, it should. We, we've read about it already in Hezekiah. It's a very idolatrous nation, and it will soon become the world power and the people who eventually oppress the nation of Judah. And so, with this in mind, we see that Babylon sending him gifts. And so much more, we should understand how significant it is that Hezekiah says, oh, come on in. These are my friends. They must be interested in me. And we see how Hezekiah spent his years, his remaining years. He spent them in comfort. He spent them in accumulating wealth. And Hezekiah was so confident in these guests right here, and he was so flattered that they would come and give him gifts, that he just shows them everything. He opens all of his vaults. He showed everything, and he held really nothing back. He's like, let me show you my bank account. You know, let me show you my, my password. Let me, let me show you my PIN number. Let me show you every single thing that I own. And he owned quite a bit. We see a short list here. He owned silver, gold, and spices. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, it tells us a little bit more about what Hezekiah owned. And it said that he had to own entire cities because that's where he stored his flocks. Like, oh, I'm going to buy that city because that's where I'm going to put my sheep. Like, he was so rich that he had everything from expensive spices to just flocks and herds of sheep and goats. And so this guy was absolutely rich. And he invites this envoy very unhesitatingly to just see, hey, look at everything I own, because simply he was flattered by their, by their greeting. He was flattered by their gifts. He threw open the entire vaults of his possessions that they might intimately know how much he was worth. 
You know, what was Hezekiah's net worth? You know, if you Google like anyone's name now, that's usually like a suggestion, like who, what is so-and-so's net worth? What is so-and-so's? Well, Hezekiah is saying, let me show you my net worth. Let me show you in real person everything I own. But there's just really one problem. We'll read together, um, starting in verses, uh, verse 3 right here. We'll continue. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah says, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. So notice that Hezekiah is kind of picking and choosing which questions he's going to answer. But really his point is, man, these guys came from a far country and they came to see me, little old me. Isn't that amazing? That these, this country came to see my great wealth and my great health. But Isaiah has an issue with that as he's going to tell him in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, and here's the warning light, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Let's stop there. So after all Hezekiah went through, after the reforms that he made, you know, to, to crack down on idolatry, to get rid of the idolatrous uh, um, places where people would sacrifice to the false gods. He was getting rid of all those things. And he tried also to maintain a faithfulness to God when they were under siege from other nations. And how he made entreaties to God and he spread out the, the taunts of Sennacherib as we read in the past few um, weeks. As he, he spread out those taunts, those letters that they were writing to blaspheme God and he spread them out before the Lord and prayed, Oh Lord, won't you, you know, avenge your name? Won't you protect your name by delivering us? And he entreated God in all these ways. And so Hezekiah had these victories where the Lord was faithful to him. And yet Hezekiah also opens the front door to Judah's eventual oppressor. He basically advertises his entire riches just simply to be taken away from him. So Isaiah tells him, this is the country, the guys you just invited, the guys you just gave the grand tour to, this is the country that's going to invade you. And everything you showed them, they're going to take from you. And not only the things that you possess, but the things your forefathers accumulated. And not only the things that your forefathers accumulated, but your, the things your sons accumulated. And not only the things your sons accumulated, but your sons themselves, who will serve a wicked king, who will serve an idolatrous king. And so, this is just a flooring judgment. Think of, you know, everything's great, you're prospering, and then all of a sudden you get this sort of news from Hezekiah. News that would really should floor you, should make you drop to your knees. But Hezekiah's response was, we might say disproportionate, or maybe inappropriate, if not maybe outright bizarre. Look at verse 8. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, 
the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now Hezekiah acknowledges that, okay, God's judgment, God's word is good. And we're like, okay, that's a good thing. He submits to God's judgment in this way. But upon further thought, and that's the kind of indication of the text right here, Hezekiah sort of reads between the lines and he thinks, well, his judgment's going to happen to my sons and they're going to take everything away. That means that there will actually be peace in my time. I think I'll make it out okay. And something in him remains kind of self-serving, looking at his own self-preservation. The commentator Alec Mottier um, points out that his outward submission to God is only matched by his inward kind of smugness. That he's like, well, I'll make it out all right. I'll be okay. It's something for my sons to worry about. How loving a father he is. Wow. And even though everything is going to be lost, Hezekiah is like, well, I'm kind of appeased. If I can get a little peace in my time, maybe it'll be worth it. (laughs) And it's kind of ridiculous to think in this perspective, but somewhere along the way, Hezekiah changed. His proud heart didn't let him see the lesson he should have learned in this situation, which is that the defense of the kingdom, the survival of Judah, the very peace that he experienced, the life that he experienced through God, was all ordained by God. And so Isaiah, or Hezekiah should have been humbled and not prideful and self-seeking. He should have been humbled acknowledging that you know everything I have is from God, and I cannot even in my own power extend the rule of this kingdom a moment longer than what God has ordained. So we have to ask ourselves, what happened to the Hezekiah we knew? What happened to the Hezekiah of a few weeks ago where he was you know, strong and trying to encourage the people to, to seek the Lord and to keep the faith? What happened to Hezekiah of even Isaiah chapter 38 where he heard that, that his illness was going to be fatal and so he turned to the Lord, he turned to the wall and he cried out to the Lord and he said, Lord, help me. And he cried out to the Lord in tears. What happened to this guy? We might say to Hezekiah, you changed. Like, what happened to you? Well, prosperity changed him. Prosperity changed him. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, gives us an instructive insight on Hezekiah's life. As the author begins to close the book on his life, the writer tells us, about, tells us this, And in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself. God left him to his own devices in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And though Hezekiah was at the peak of his power, he was powerless in this sort of situation. And in this really banal, commonplace situation where he shows the the envoys of Babylon, it wasn't any major explicit threat Hezekiah is defeated soundly in this way. And Hezekiah virtually kind of loses the kingdom, the future kingdom in this way. And he seemed to forget who really ruled the people of God in his pride. Now to be certain, I'm bagging on Hezekiah a lot, that's true, but the Bible does tell us that he was a good man. Scripture tells us that he did what was right before the Lord. But that should make us 
fear and kind of give ourselves a warning even more that this was a good man, this was a righteous man, but he made this kind of huge mistake. He forgot the Lord. In pride, he was blinded to the nature of God who gave him peace, who gave him life, who gave him this position to rule over the kingdom, possessions and riches and health and success desensitized him from a proud or from a proper healthy fear of God. You might think of um, the proverb in Proverbs chapter 30. The, the writer tells God, he prays to God in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 through 9. He says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be fool and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's kind of a funny proverb right here, but the, the writer recognizes that there is a danger, yes, in suffering. There's a danger in being poor because, you know, you'd be tempted to steal food. But there's almost like a greater danger in success, in prosperity, in riches, where you tend to forget about the God who gave you all those things. And you puff yourself up in pride and you think, oh, I'm self-sufficient. I can deal with these things. I can deal with anything you know, my, my 1989 Jeep is running well. This can run for another 100,000 miles, as I often told my wife. Now, don't get me wrong, of course. I have to reiterate that all blessings are from God. But some have the idea that the only way God expresses pleasure for you as a Christian is if he gives you prosperity. And that if you're doing something wrong, you know, God's not pleased with you or you're in sin or something like that. Or, or I'm sorry, if, if you're not if you're not wealthy and rich, if you're not driving Mercedes-Benz, people say, oh, you know, maybe you have sin in your life. You, know, you, need to, you need to do something else so that God can bless you. You, know, you have to get the promotion. You have to get all these uh, bills paid. And your children need to marry rich or something like that. That's usually the idea of what we would call the, the prosperity gospel. But in reality, prosperity is very detrimental to our souls because it causes us to forget God. It's a trial for really the, the ruling and the lordship of our hearts because it changes us just as it changes Hezekiah. He was all too content to settle for a little bit of peace in his time if that meant kind of losing everything one generation later. He traded all of those things for just temporary peace. And aren't we like that? Don't we try to avoid thinking about you know, the future don't we try to avoid, you know, thinking about eternity because we have these good distractions. We have these creature comforts that keep us nice in our life. And we're thinking, if we can just have a good day at work, if we can just have a good week, if we can just live in comfort, if I don't have to worry about the debt that I'm in, what, then I'll be happy. But what would we be willing to trade? The care of our own souls for that kind of thing? Would we be tra willing to trade our, our children's future for that kind of thing? You think of, like, the, the national debt where we've basically bankrupted you know, our great-grandchildren right here because we've said, oh, we have to do this thing right now or the country you know, won't, won't recover. Well, we're, we're taking money from you know, the future to benefit ourselves now. It's kind of like that situation. 18th century preacher Nathaniel Emmons says this, and it's in your bulletin, mankind are naturally averse from contemplating the shortness and uncertainty of life and very reluctant to carry their thoughts into the invisible and eternal world. Why? They love life 
and temporal ease and prosperity, and they have devised a vast many ways to banish from their minds future, invisible, and eternal scenes and objects which disturb their cardinal peace and security. We don't like to think about the future. We don't like to think about death. And there's nothing wrong with it, but, you know, when people have, when people pass away, people like to make, you know, it's not a funeral, you know, it's a celebration of life. We don't like to think about death. But in many ways, it's really helpful for us to think about death because it helps us to think about eternity and where our souls are going and the fact that the things we're building up here, the riches we're accumulating on earth, are simply going to be lost. We're never going to be able to take them with us after we die. And so when we are distracted from the true eternal kingdom of God, we concern ourselves with building our own kingdom. And that's what Hezekiah was doing. And so in what ways, because you're saying, Jared, you know, you're saying prosperity is perilous, prosperity is dangerous. In what ways is prosperity dangerous? Because I see it as, you know, good, and it really is good. You know, nice things are nice. That's why they're called nice things. But prosperity can bring great peril into our lives for a few reasons. And it's not that the thing itself is bad. Let me reiterate, riches aren't bad in themselves, but they invite they tend to invite bad guests. And so here's a, a short list of what prosperity kind of invites into our life that are bad. Number one, prosperity invites complacency. Hezekiah's wealth kind of made him insensible to the situation, and he was kind of numb to the impending danger that was going to happen to his own family only one generation later. And it threatened his entire country. And he was thinking, well, you know what? There will be peace in my time. So, you know, it's, it, you know, it works out a little bit. And sometimes, yeah, that's, it's, that's true. The prosperity and, you know, when everything's going okay, that makes us numb to our true spiritual state. We might be, you know, not going to church or not praying. And, you know, our soul's in a terrible spiritual state. But if things are going well... We're like, oh, maybe, maybe we're okay without God. Maybe we're okay without these things. And the devil isn't attacking us in those cases with head-on temptation. He's not appearing to you, manifesting himself with horns and a pitchfork. But he's coming from a side wind. And he's coming to us in our recreational time. We just, you know, we just had Halloween, as I mentioned, on October 31st, in case you were wondering when Halloween is. And, you know, Christians have different ways to celebrate it because they think, you know, Satan has special power over October 31st or something like that. And, you know, when people think of Satan, they think of, you know, goats and, you know, um, drinking goat's blood and sacrificing things and, you know, a demon possession. And those are, you know, the great manifestations we might think of Satanism. But true Satanism is distracting us, right? It's more commonplace that the tricks and the wiles of the devil. It's distracting us. It's leaving us preoccupied with building our own kingdom and, and making a name for ourselves. There's more maybe satanic activity in the YouTube autoplay feature that you know, distracts you and takes you to somewhere you don't want to go than maybe in the whole of Halloween. Because those kind of things are subtle and we don't immediately recognize them. And they're a form of Satan getting into our life and tempting us with things when, at, when we're at our most vulnerable. So prosperity invites complacency in our lives. And if there was one thing that Isaiah, but 
mostly also Jeremiah and Ezekiel as prophets dealt with constantly, was other contemporary false prophets who at the same time, let's say for instance, Hezekiah was saying, judgment's going to come on you for sin. Those false prophets were saying, no, you guys are fine. Judgment's not going to come for a while. It's going to be okay. Just go home, you know, spend some time with your family. It's going to be great. And it lacked the urgency of their spiritual state. And so in that way, complacency really is the enemy of spiritual growth. But not only does prosperity invite complacency, prosperity invites frustration with our riches. Because the more we tend to gain, the more we worry about the stuff that we gain. If we have a really nice car, we think, oh, do we have insurance for that car? You know, what if that car gets hit? You know, we, we keep it from um, getting scratched in even the slightest way. When I was in high school and college, I delivered safes quite often to, with, my, with my father, and we often visited really nice houses, and you, you can look at their houses and say, oh, yeah, they need a safe because they have a lot of, you know, valuable stuff. And in some of those cases, they were like, oh, don't, don't touch this painting, you know, don't, don't touch this furniture. Oh, stay away from this, this truck, you know, this truck has never had a scratch on it, it's 50 years old. And they're so worried and preoccupied about their riches and preserving their riches. And it's frustrating when you lose those things, for instance, in a fire, like a wildfire we're enduring, where you lose those things, and it's a deep sadness when you're losing your riches. Isaiah, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2 tells us, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And he talks about the fact that God does not give him power to enjoy them sometimes. And it's frustrating and it tells us that a stranger enjoys them. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us this is vanity, and it is a grievous evil. And so Isaiah's learning the hard way that everything he's building up, everything he's accumulating, is not going to last one moment longer than really his time and tenure on earth. And if we've hoarded a lot of things, if we have a lot of things in storage, where's all that going to go? It's going to be lost in storage war bidding, or it's going to be acquired by the United States government, or our great-grandchildren are going to fight over our, in, their inheritance in court or something like that. And it's all going to go out different places, and we're not going to be able to enjoy it if we've hoarded all these things for ourselves. But not only that, prosperity also invites presumption. It gives us a false sense of confidence in ourselves. When things are doing well, we think, oh, yeah, like I'm, I'm carrying this out. I'm doing this. In James chapter 4, we learn that we shouldn't be overconfident in the prosperity we expect in our lives. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 14 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A lot of people in the millennial generation, and you know, I'm a millennial, so I guess I can, you know, talk about millennials in this way. They, the surveys say that, you know, they ex they expect to be rich sometime in their life. They don't know how, they don't know why, they don't know the whole plan. But it's like, well, I expect riches, and that's really a problem to expect that you will prosper in the future because you may not, you may, we don't know if the Lord wills something like that will happen. But that shouldn't distract us from being obedient Christians from doing our duty and loving God and worshiping Him only. 
And lastly, prosperity invites manipulation. Manipulation. Hezekiah was able to be manipulated by these guards, by these, this envoy of princes, because he was already beholden to his riches. And he was beholden to anyone who gave him riches. And so he was able to be manipulated because riches had already gotten into his heart. And he showed that he could be bought, if you will. And so in the most stable time of Hezekiah's rule, because of these things, he suffers a great defeat that affects the entire course of Jewish history, if you will. This is where the defeat happened. It wasn't in future generations. It was really in his heart. And so, as we're going through this chapter, we might think, man, this is, you know, this is kind of rough to think about that this was all going to happen. But there's a greater principle we should learn. And there's a greater point to Isaiah's um, epilogue of Hezekiah in this chapter, in chapter 39, than you know, merely learning the, the dangers of prosperity. And that's a larger narrative about the true kingdom of God and the true king that preserves that kingdom. Hezekiah, though he did what was right, he did what was good before the Lord, he made a tragic error that compromised the kingdom. And though he had peace in his lifetime, he was really powerless to preserve the peace any moment longer and after he died. He couldn't guarantee peace and security to the next generation. He couldn't transfer the peace that he had to the future in preservation of the kingdom. And that reminds us that God's the one who really keeps his kingdom. We should look to the kingdom of God, not to our own kingdom, which is vulnerable to our own gaffes and foibles and ability to lose it. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, it's actually, it's Daniel's quite significantly later than Isaiah, and it's actually the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who had come to know the Lord, <laughs> which ironically, he comes to know the Lord in this way. Daniel chapter 4, verse 3 tells us this, how great are his signs, talking about the Lord, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. When we see figures like Isaiah who are good men, but they're imperfect, and they fail in these great ways, we should be reminded of the true king who preserves his kingdom, who doesn't lose a single you know, cup or valuable item in his kingdom, who preserves it into the future. We are told to look to Christ and seek Christ's kingdom because Christ is the true and better king. He's the true promised king that was promised to us throughout the book of Isaiah and even earlier than that with King David, where God says, I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom, one that cannot be broken. And you know, king after king after king rose up, and even with the good ones, people could look to that king and say, well, he was good, but he's died off. He was good, but he wasn't able to ensure us and guarantee us the survival of the kingdom. God tells us that Christ is that one. Jesus is the one who preserves the kingdom Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21 tells us, Do not lay for your, up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we have to ask ourselves, what do I have that can't be taken from me? What things do I value most that are also unable to be stolen from me 
or rotten or, you know, uh, rusted? And what kind of power do I have to preserve the kingdom that I'm building? But most importantly, we should consider who is preserving us? Who is keeping us? We learn from Hezekiah that God was the one who kept him. God was the one single-handedly responsible for extending his life 15 more years so that Hezekiah, the fact that he existed in those 15 years was only attributed to God. And so, whom do you have who can give you life? But not only life on earth, but eternal life. And so we should consider those things as we're moving through life, as we're you know, maybe busy with the temporal things, as we're looking at the direct week ahead, we should also have an eternal perspective and think, God, am I building my own kingdom on this earth? Am I building a kingdom that's just going to be obliterated later, that's going to be sold off, that's going to you know, come into the hands of people who are just going to squander it, namely you know, my kids or something like that? Am I building that kind of kingdom that can be lost and taken from me? Or am I investing in an eternal kingdom that has a true king that can preserve that kingdom. Christ came, and he came and took on the form of a man. And he was fully man and fully God. And he went to a cross and died for our sins so that we would have no separation between ourselves and God if we would simply look to Christ as that king who's able to preserve us and take us into his eternal kingdom, which is not of this world, but is in heaven and Christ is looking to us and saying, why would you spend your time on things that are going to burn, that are going to rust, and accumulating these things? I've given you these years, just as he's given Hezekiah those years, to invest in a solid, eternal kingdom. That fact that we can do that is so fascinating and great because we don't know how many years we have left. I'm looking at my notes right now, and my toner's running out, and the lights has been on forever, and I'm kind of just like running it, you know, dry until, you know, I get every single cent out of that toner cartridge, it's, which is kind of cheap. But in the same way, like, we, we look at our own lives, and we're thinking like, man, like, maybe you've had like a brush with death. Maybe you've come close to just great dangerous situations in your life, and you're like, man, the fact that I am alive, that I exist, can only be attributed to God. Don't forget that fact, because that's a teachable moment, and that's, instruct that's um, um, instructive to your hearts. And so two things I want to leave you with as we close. In times of prosperity, number one, we should seek God's kingdom. That's the point I've been hammering for the last five minutes. That's true. But what should we recognize what does God give you now that's of everlasting value? And what sort of hope does God promise you today? Even as we go into the season, we count our blessings, we count the fact that, you know, maybe we have a running car and, you know, maybe we have a, a, a nice coffee mug in the morning that's not broken, I don't know. Maybe we have all these things we're like so thankful for, but what should we really be thankful for? Luke chapter 12, verse 29 through 32, Jesus tells us, Do not seek what you are to eat, even, or what you are to drink, nor be worried about those things. For all the nations of the world seek after those kinds of things, and the Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then he says with great assurance, What is God's good pleasure? He says, Fear not little flock. I like that, you know, we're, we're God's flock in this. Hezekiah had his flock. Christ has his flock, and we are his flock. 
and he takes care of us. So he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we should recognize that and invest and seek God's kingdom. Secondly, and you know, this is kind of a cheap one because it's Thanksgiving, but we should just give thanks. And giving thanks to God and remembering to give thanks to God soberly and seriously every day, at every meal, of course, but in the morning when you're praying with your family, in the evening before you go to bed, giving thanks for the fact that you can live this life keeps our hearts vigilant, keeps our hearts in defense against Satan's sidewinds of tempting us with things in our leisure. Colossians chapter, two verse, Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 tells us this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So let me ask you guys, are you being watchful in your own hearts? Are you being watchful with the sort of thanksgiving that you're being to God, recognizing that he's the one who gave it to you, and you are really powerless to preserve your own life and preserve your own quote-unquote kingdom any further than God has ordained? Let us consider these things as we pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, you grant to us so many things, and I ask, Lord, that the things you give us, whether we're in a time of prosperity or whether we're in a time of maybe just uh, leanness, that, Lord, our hearts would seek you. That, Lord, ours would be the prayer of the, the writer of the proverb who said, give us not too much, give us not too little, that we would forget you and sin in either way. And I ask, Lord, that we would continually, no matter what the circumstances, be dependent upon you and that we would invest in a kingdom that has no end the kingdom of Christ, the everlasting kingdom. I ask, Lord, that we would invest in that kingdom and that, Lord, we would be a part of that kingdom. And for anyone here that does not know Christ, whose sins have not been forgiven and wiped out and forgotten by you, that, Lord, they would simply look to him and say, Lord, I, you're my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. I want to enter your kingdom. And that, Lord, that would be their prayer, even as we enter the season of thanksgiving, that they would recognize everything we have is borrowed. Everything we have is from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.